Guys, it's an honor to speak to you, and, and what Pastor just said, I firmly believe. Um, having great men in our churches, uh, whether older, younger, married, single, um, dealing with you know being a single dad, uh, whatever stage you might be in life, your contribution to your church and your involvement is so very, very important. So I'm grateful for you. So I, I do want to dive right in this morning, use our time wisely, because the speaker in the last session, like, he just didn't quit. So, so I'm going to try to make up for him. Um, so here we go. Um, I want to start, uh, actually, we were chatting some of our, uh, the ministry uh, last night. We were chatting, and I want to actually start in a scripture that got mentioned last night, and we'll kind of go from there. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 11. Exodus 17 and verse 11. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, yes. that Israel prevailed. Yes. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Okay. So that's our setting just to jump off. That's our diving board. Joshua, his first victory, he was a young leader in Israel. His first victory as a young man was his defeat of the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. And it was in that very first battle of Joshua's military career that the elder Moses taught Joshua and a couple of his buddies this really important lesson about the power of prayer and the power of the name of the Lord. Joshua learned at the beginning of his career as a general in the army of Israel, he learned early that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's what made the Israelite army so strong. Now, uh, this is kind of cool to me, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, there's a few of you here, but most guys, this is not you, I, I'm, um, uh, what's that spiritual Bible word? I'm a geek. Uh, that's what I am. I, I like computer stuff, and I like little weird word studies and, and whatever. So I'm a I'm a geek. Uh, that's the the original Greek word, the, the original geek word. Uh, so if you study the Hebrew alphabet, which nobody in their right mind that's an English speaker would do that, but I have uh, a little bit. If you study the Hebrew alphabet, it's 22 letters, and the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet um, is is um, a high and holy letter to the Jewish people. They revere that little letter so much because it stands for not one, but two names of God. That 21st letter is called the Sheen. Everybody say the Sheen. sheen. So, so the Sheen is the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a little three-pronged letter. It looks like that. Just do that with your hand, would you? A little three-pronged letter like that. Uh, in your country, since you're California, and, and uh, there's a place out here called... Um, Hollywood? No, Hollywood. Okay, so, so yeah, Hollywood. Um, years ago, uh, there was, a, when I was a kid, actually, there was a, a science fiction series called Star Trek. Um, anybody ever heard of Star Trek out here in California? Okay, so there was a character, uh, an alien on that uh, series, played by an actor named Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy was Jewish. And so when they were trying to come up, see the Jews, they wouldn't make the sheen like that. Uh, they would make the sheen like this. 
And so when they were trying to come up with a greeting that this alien would use, Leonard Nimoy was the actor, and he was Jewish. He said, how about this? And they said, okay, good. So that became the uh, Vulcan greeting or whatever like this. Every time he did that, he was making the sheen. Uh, the, the high, holy, 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, it, it, I'm not very coordinated, so it's easier for me to do this. Um, the sheen represents the name El Shaddai, which is God, the almighty, the all-powerful, the, the all-sufficient, the unlimited one. And it also represents, the sheen represents uh, shalom, which is peace, or more than peace, it's wholeness. And so it represents not one, but two names of God. And it looks like that. And if you go to Israel, uh, anywhere today where the Orthodox Jews have any influence, hotels, elevators, office buildings, homes, businesses, you will find a little uh, cylindrical box uh, on each doorway. And it's, it's long. And inside those boxes, they're called a mezuzah. And it has a scroll. And on that scroll is a verse that you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And on top of that little box is that little letter, the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the sheen. And so they will, as they enter rooms or elevators or doors, uh, you don't want to be in uh, a high-rise hotel in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Because on the Sabbath day, none of the buttons on the elevators work. Um, because you're not allowed to push buttons on the Sabbath day. So the elevator, you know, in these 15, 16, 20 floor hotels, they stop on every floor every time, up and down. It takes forever to get anywhere on the Sabbath. But anyway, as they enter even an elevator, they'll see this little box. They reach out and they touch that letter. And they bring their hand to their mouth and they kiss their hand. And they're honoring the name of God because the sheen stands for the name of God. Now, the old Hasidic rabbis taught that the sheen looks like a man in the proper position for prayer and worship. The middle prong of the letter is his head, and the outer two prongs are his uplifted hands. So that's what they taught. So when you lift your hands, you're actually forming the name of God with your body. So this is cool, because in Exodus 17, remember, the battle is being fought all day long, and so they send the elder up to the mountain. And Moses gets up on that mountain and holds his hands up over the army below. And when he did, he cast the shadow of the name of the Lord on the army beneath him in the valley. And as long as the name of the Lord was lifted up over that army, Israel prevailed. But when Moses got tired and let down his hands, then Amalek started surging forward. And so they sent Aaron and Hur, two buddies of Joshua, these young men, they go up and they hold up the elders' hands. And Israel won the victory that day. So when somebody talks to you about our Pentecostal worship, we don't just worship like more excitedly or exuberantly than other denominations. No, our worship, guys, is ancient worship. It goes way back into the New Testament, the Old Testament. When you lift up your hands, you're not only worshiping God with what you're saying at that moment. When you lift up your hands, you're actually worshiping God with your body. It's not just a Pentecostal custom. That's ancient worship. Can you imagine how much power is released 
when a, a man, a, a man like you, that you're in covenant with the name of Jesus because you were baptized in his name yes. and you're worshiping the name of Jesus with your words and then you lift up your hands and you actually invoke the name of God with your posture. Can you imagine how much power is released at that moment? That's why our services are filled with the power of God because we, we worship God in every way possible. And you are the men of this church. You are what the Bible would refer to as you are the priest of your home. It doesn't mean you're the holiest one or the most godly. It's not talking about that. It's a leadership role. It's a God calling. And you are the priest of your home. You're supposed to. It's your job to lead your family in honoring and serving God. And so you should be the first to worship, not the last. Uh, you should be the first to the altar, not the last. Your wife shouldn't be dragging the kids and you're still sitting back there like a pew potato. Uh, you're, you're the priest of the home. You're the leader of the home. So, so, so this is important. So, uh, so let, let's uh, continue on. So that was verse 11 of Exodus 17. So now we go to verse 15 and 16. And the Bible says, after that battle... Moses built an altar and he called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, which is Jehovah, my banner. And here's what he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek, the Amalekites, from generation to generation. So the altar built at the end of that particular battle was called, the altar was named, the Lord, my banner. A banner was a military standard that was raised as a call to fight. Yes. Every soldier would rally to whatever spot where the banner was lifted up. And so it was calling at this point, that altar was like a banner lifted up. You know, the, the battle's going fierce and we're in trouble over here and the enemy's pushing in. Somebody raises the standard, they raise the banner and the army rushes to that spot to push the enemy back. Well, Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord, my banner, because God is calling us to fight the evil of the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, you probably know this verse, Isaiah 59 and verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. In other words, when the enemy pushes in, God sends out a call to holy men of God, men that are serving Jesus, to rally to that point. We don't let the enemy just randomly attack our families and we don't ever push back. How ridiculous is that? We don't just let the enemy cause trouble with our kids and our grandchildren. What kind of a man would that be men were wired by God to fight battles and, and we're wired by God to be aggressive that's a masculine trait and so now today they're talking about of course they are the, the, the whole liberal kind of world I'm just talking about a political party I'm just talking about that that spirit that's kind of anti-God and anything goes that spirit is talking today have you noticed this talking about toxic masculinity yeah, right. you know why they're talking about toxic masculinity 
because they've never been exposed to biblical masculinity. And so they think that that aggression is, is terrible, it's toxic, it's awful. When that aggression is channeled into the kingdom of God and we're fighting the enemy instead of fighting each other and we're fighting the devil instead of fighting with our spouse, when, when that masculine energy and aggression is channeled properly, there's nothing more powerful than that uh, that God could do through a group of men like you. So it's so important. So let me tell you about these Amalekites, because that's an Old Testament group of people that, that battled with Israel. So here, here we go. The Amalekites, they were one of the most enduring enemies of God's people anywhere in the Old Testament. They were descended from Esau, and so their very first encounter with Israel was just after Israel is set free from Egypt. They've been in bondage for 430 years. They've been slaves for four centuries. They're not organized. They're, they don't have strategy. They've just been set free. And the very first battle between Israel and Amalek was when the Amalekites attacked Israel. They're, they're, they're vulnerable. They've just been set free from Egypt. They have no weapons. And, and Amalekite, the Amalekites launched an unprovoked attack in the Sinai Desert right after the exodus from Egypt. And they continued to attack the Jews anytime they saw an opportunity. They were ruthless, and they were cruel, and they were aggressive. They were sadistic. They were bent on the genocide of Israel, the Amalekites, yes. descended from Amalek. One rabbinical source says that their name, Amalek, Amalek, Amalek means literally people who lick blood. They were sadistic and brutal and cruel. Now, this is a male audience, so I will tell you this, that in, in, in an attempt to mock the Israelites who were circumcised, they would mock that covenant of circumcision, and if they ever captured a Jewish soldier, they would mutilate his body to mock his covenant of circumcision with God. They sadistically mutilated any Jewish man they ever captured. And because their primary ambition was the absolute annihilation of God's people, the only recourse, according to God himself, was you've got to totally obliterate the Amalekites in a preemptive strike. You don't wait till they attack. You, you wipe them out. And that is the reasoning behind God's severe command to Saul, who is the first king of Israel. Here's what he says in 1 Samuel 15. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. God said, if you don't wipe them out, they are going to eventually wipe you out. And so Saul is a backslidden king. So for reasons of his own, um, double-minded King Saul declines to destroy the Amalekites. Um, he, he saves some of the cattle, he saves some of the women and children, and, and he declines to even kill uh, King Agag of the Amalekites, the ruler. And that results in a very, very angry prophet named Samuel, who literally hacks King Agag into pieces in Saul's throne room. But here's the point, here's why Samuel the prophet was so angry. Saul's stubborn refusal to wipe out the enemy that had cost Israel so much. His stubborn refusal to wipe out the enemy that relentlessly attacked Israel time and again, it immediately cost him his relationship with the prophet Samuel. They never spoke again. 
It eventually cost him his kingship, and ultimately it cost Saul and his sons their lives on the battlefield. Because of Saul's disobedience, the Amalekites, these fierce opponents of God's people, they survived many more years, decades, all the way down to the days of King Hezekiah. There were still Amalekites attacking Israel because Saul fumbled the ball. Saul didn't take advantage of the opportunity and the commission of God when he had the chance. But on a different day, on the particular day that I want to talk to you about, it's not Saul this time. This day, the Amalekites have chosen a different kind of opponent. They have happened upon the camp of David. Saul is king. David is basically a fugitive from backslidden King Saul. And the Amalekites, they happen upon the camp of David at a place called Ziklag. And on this day, David and his men, he's got about 400 men that are, are, are in covenant with him, and he and his men are away fighting. And the Amalekites have used this moment of vulnerability to destroy everything in Ziklag. They've set the whole village on fire. And worse, they have kidnapped the wives and the children of David and his men. And now David and his men come back to their camp at Ziklag, the village they've established. And the carnage and the loss are staggering. It just knocks the breath out of them. So this is 1 Samuel, at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 30, uh, verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, and they had smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but they kidnapped them. They carried them away, and they went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. You see, if Saul had only been willing to act on that day, the Amalekites would not have survived to attack on this day. That's the deal. At some point, you've got to decide, I am not retreating anymore. I'm going to fight this battle and I am going to push the devil back. Because let me tell you something about the devil. The devil, he's going to just keep pushing. He, he's, he's never going to give up. Every generation, see that's why God had Moses build that altar. Every generation is called to war with the Amalekites. But Saul missed his moment. So here's, here's David. David is totally shattered by this and shocked by this, especially the reaction of his men. These are his loyal men. Here, here's what it says, verse 4. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carbalite. And David was greatly distressed because the people, his own men, spoke of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. David can hardly believe it that on this day, his men, they've been in the trenches together. They followed him. They've been loyal. Even under the persecution of Saul, they've been loyal to David. And David can't believe it because in this one moment of defeat, and the villages burned, and their wives are 
taken captive and their children have been kidnapped by the Amalekites. And in this one moment, the shock is so great that his own men speak of stoning him. You see, it's just a gut level reaction to severe emotional trauma. That's what's going on. See, on this day, they didn't just lose face. They, you know, they lost a fight. They didn't just lose face. They've lost their families. And, and, and so it's such a shock to their system. Because, guys, nothing hits us harder than when we've got trouble at home. Nothing hits us harder than when the enemy's attacking our household, our marriage, our children, our family. Here's the deal. We can come to church. We can put on our little plastic smile. We can try to keep it cool and let everybody think that we got it all in control. But if, if the devil is attacking your family, there's nothing that hits us harder. And there's nothing that hit David's men any harder than that. But on this day, the enemies made a mistake. Because the Amalekites didn't attack a weak, waffling leader like Saul. This time they've attacked David, who is a man after God's own heart. So the Bible says that even right then in that very same verse where his men speak of stoning him, the Bible says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So instead of collapsing in despair and saying, I can't do anything about this, David kept his spiritual wits about him. And David goes to prayer and David encourages himself in the Lord. See, here's the difference between Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the second king of Israel. Saul needed the approval and the affirmation of everybody around him. Right. If, if people weren't saying, you're a good guy, Saul, we love you, Saul. If he didn't have everybody's affirmation and approval, he, he, he pandered to everybody. He was always trying to impress people. You know, David, no way. David doesn't need your approval. David yeah. doesn't need your adoration. David doesn't need your affirmation. David encouraged him himself in the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. David doesn't need anybody except God when the chips are down. And that's why he's a strong leader. So God gives David a word for that battle. Look at this. Uh, this is still 1 Samuel 30 verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. It's what they used when the priests would pray. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answered David. And here's the message of God to David. Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Here's the word of God to David. Here's the word of God to apostolic men in this generation. Pursue, because if you pursue... You will overtake the enemy. And when you overtake the enemy, you will recover all that the enemy has taken from you. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, but I want you to use your imagination for a minute. Uh, meanwhile, while all that's going on in Ziklag, the smoldering ruins of their homes, and David's men are so upset, and they speak for a few minutes of stoning their leader, and David goes to prayer and gets that word from God. Meanwhile, the captured wives and children of David and his men, they are totally at the mercy of the barbaric Amalekites. They've been tied up and trussed up like sacks of potatoes. They've been thrown hastily into rough-hewn wagons. And they've been prodded with all those filthy weapons of the barbaric Amalekites. 
And those menacing soldiers are mocking these women and these little children. They are being terrorized by an enemy that has fought Israel for generations. They are scared to death of the fate that probably awaits them. You have to remember something, guys. These women and these children had never before seen David and his men ever lose a battle. So this is a shock to the system. They'd always been on the winning side before, but now, now, because the men were away, the wives and the children are at the mercy of the enemy. Because the men were away, they've been left vulnerable and defenseless in the face of the enemy's attacks. So, I got a pretty good imagination because I got that, that geek word operating in my spirit. I don't know. Here's my imagination on that day. I don't know who said it first. Maybe it was a trembling mother and she's got pain in her eyes and panic in her heart. Maybe it was her. Or maybe it was a teenage boy and his face is flashing fire but his voice keeps cracking and it betrays his fear. Or maybe it was a little tiny girl and she's been thrown over the shoulder of one of those big brutal Amalekite soldiers And he's mocked her, and her tears are flowing from her face. I don't know who said it first. I don't know if it was a wife or a son or a daughter. I don't know if they wailed it or they whispered it. But if you had been there on that day and you listened closely, I think you would have heard somebody say it. Somebody would be arguing with those Amalekites. I think on that day, either a wife or a little girl or a little boy said, You may be destroying everything we have right now. You may have burned down everything we've built. Right now you might be winning the day. Right now you might be holding us captive. You might be causing unbelievable grief and pain right now. You might be gloating over all the destruction and the devastation you've caused as our enemy. But you just wait. You just wait until the men get home. Come on. Because when the men come home, it's going to be different. There is such a shift in a family when a man decides, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I believe you would have heard it on that day. Somebody said to those Amalekites, I'm scared of you. But you wait till the men get home. Because when the men get home, it's yeah. going to be different. Amen. More than one third of American children live in a home where their dad is physically absent. That's right. Millions more have fathers who are physically present, but they're emotionally absent. And most tragic of all, Millions and millions more have fathers who provide for their children physically and even are there for them emotionally, but they are absent in the most important way. They're absent spiritually. Brothers, it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is within our power to change that sad state of affairs. There has to be something that rises up in an apostolic man's heart that says, devil, you just wait till I get home. Because I can pray in more places than the altar at church. I can go to war against you in more places than sitting in my seat on Sunday morning. I am going to go to war at home. I am not warring with my wife. I am not warring with my children. I am going to war with you, devil. You just... 
quick till I get home because I'm going to settle a score with you. Yes. This was on the front page of the Promise Keepers website for years. I don't think it's there now, but the statistics are so powerful. When a child, when a child leads their family in church involvement, when a child leads the way, 3.5% of those families end up serving God. When a child is the first one to come to church, first one to get baptized, when a child leads the way, 3.5% of those families statistically end up serving God. When a woman, a wife, a mother, when she leads her family in church involvement, it's much better. 17% of those families statistically will end up serving God. But when a man, a husband, a father, when a man leads his family in church involvement, in serving God, 93% of those families end up serving God. So brethren, your job is so very important. And the word from God to men in this hour is you need to pursue because if you pursue, you will overtake the enemy. And when you overtake him, you will. Everything will be restored. You will recover all. So I know you're, you're, you're guys. I know I, I, I'm one of you. I know that your boss can be endlessly demanding and I know that your career can be very time consuming and I know you've got more commitments than you can count, guys. I, I get it. I know. And I know that your to-do list, and then for some of us, we have a honey-do list at home. I know that could keep 10 people busy for a week. I, I get it. I know that your car and your house and several other possessions, isn't it true that they all end up needing maintenance at the same time? And I know. I get it. You need time to relax, and you need time to recharge. But don't forget, guys, someday somebody else is going to fill every role that you have. And someday somebody else is going to take care of every responsibility that you have. Somebody else is going to sit at your desk at work. Somebody else is going to manage your contacts for your company. Somebody else is going to hold the position that you hold at church right now serving God. Nobody will ever hold the position of dad or husband, nobody else can replace you there. Don't forget that your family needs you more than your friends. Your family needs you more than your fans on social media. What a trap that is. So dads and husbands, men, don't trade the one role that is unique to you for something that somebody else is going to eventually do anyway. You're not always going to work at that company. And it might not be, well, I'll, I'll retire someday. It might not be retirement. It could be shut down, downsize. It could be anything in this, this day and age. Somebody else is eventually going to sit at that desk. And nobody's going to miss you after a few weeks. But at home, I'm seeing that in my kids right now. I pray and trust and hope to God 